Hello and welcome to another episode of this podcast with me, Jeremy Cherfus. New year, new season, and I hope you enjoy what I've got in store for you and that you'll help to spread the word, starting with a food that didn't really exist 150 years ago and now it's everywhere. I'm talking about baby food. You go to the baby food aisle of your local supermarket and you're liable to be bewildered by what's on offer, especially if you're not currently feeding a baby. But it wasn't always like this. Baby food is a relatively recent invention. In the mid to 1860s, 1870s, there were these, there was a category of, um, soft foods appropriate for invalids, the elderly, and babies. Basically anyone with, uh, no teeth, <laughs> probably. And also just needing some softer foods, um, some more comforting foods. Uh, I'm Amy Bentley. I'm a professor of food studies in the Department of Nutrition and Food Studies at New York University, and I call myself a food historian, and I wrote the book Inventing Baby Food, Taste, Health, and the Industrialization of the American Diet, which was published in 2014. There were lots of reasons I wanted to talk to Amy Bentley, which we'll get to. But first, I want to tell you about a really interesting graph in her book. It starts in 1880 and it comes forward to 2000 and it plots the generally accepted age at which babies in the US should start eating solid foods. In the 1880s it's up around 11 months. In the 1990s and 2000s it's come down to 5 months. But in the middle, the 1950s and 1960s, the average dips down to just two months. Most babies don't even get their first tooth until they're around six months. So what's going on? Why the dip? Why so low? And why does it go up again? It's related to a variety of factors, including the, the industrialization of the food supply and the industrialization of food for infants, um, the discovery of vitamins in the early 20th century, that for the first time, fruits and vegetables had some food value beyond, you know, just nice to have, and in fact, even a little suspicion, the rise of the medical professions, specializations in um, nutrition and OBGYN and pediatrics, and everybody kind of wanting a piece of infant feeding um, practice and advice, advertising. And so all of that just created this momentum to invent the product, for instance, because the something, a category like baby food did not exist. So the invention of a category of food for infants, and then also just ramping up in volume and diversity and in, in, imprinting itself on American culture, that it becomes a rite of passage to feed your child these commercial baby foods and um, the earlier the better. But apart from formula milk, um, when, did, when did baby food, I mean food for babies, when did that become a thing, a category? You have household manuals in the 1870s, 1880s, and there were these categories of 
of of these soft foods, which were mostly gruels, so grain-based gruels, and beef broth, minced beef, scraped beef. And these were thought to be the strength-producing foods. These were the foods that if you were... um, if your system was compromised, if you were elderly, these were the foods that you needed. Infants were also supposed to eat these foods, but not too early at an age. Um, after a year, approximately a year of age, the, the first 12 months being um, breastfed. And so fruits and vegetables were never to be a part of an infant's diet. In fact, uh, it was the, the household manuals recommended they not be fed fruits and vegetables until after the second summer. How did things move from these soft foods for invalids and the weak and, and infants? How did, how did that become commercialized? Well, in the um, early 20th century, canned food is just becoming um, proliferating and becoming safe and thought of as safe in the 1920s, teens, 20s. At some point, and this, there's, there's myths surrounding it. Um, it, it really begins in Rochester, New York, where a man is creating a soup concoction for his sick infant and the infant becomes healthier and his friends and neighbors ask for that recipe. And so he starts, he works with a cannery in Rochester, New York to can those fruits and vegetables. There's also the Gerber brothers in upstate Michigan who have a cannery and are producing fruits and vegetables canned. And there's an idea that babies can benefit from vegetables and fruits by then. And so there's lots of, you know, the women are making the the cooking the vegetables are chopping them up or pureeing them and it's creating an extra amount of work. And so the, the myth, the lore is that the Dorothy Gerber, Mrs. Gerber asks her husband, well, you're canning fruits and vegetables anyway. Why don't you create some products for babies that are already pureed and available? And so they start, um, start manufacturing infant uh, purees and they, they slap a pencil, sketch of a winsome baby on the front, Gerber baby. Mm-hmm. And the product is just, it's a it's the right product at the right time. It captures, that baby captures the imagination. And so there's an advertising element that becomes popular. Um, the product becomes available at the time when it is seen as needed for babies. It's advertised brilliantly in ladies' magazines. Don't spend all your time at a hot stove buy Gerber baby food. It will um, make you and your husband happier. Um, They advertise in medical journals and nutrition journals. Doctors prescribe this product for your patients. Um, This is healthy. This is clean and safe. And that consumers like it. The women like it. Um, It becomes very popular during the 1930s, the Great Depression, when money is scarce. And so the fact that the numbers are increasing even during the 1930s is pretty amazing. They are responding to advertising. They're responding to the product availability, but they also see it as a benefit in their lives. You know, one less thing I have to do, one more thing that will help me um, do other things rather than stay in the kitchen. And so it's a product that is seen as valued, important, not just like foisted upon the consumer. Is it also speaking to mothers, maybe 
in insecurity about feeding their babies? It is. It is. Um, some of the advertising is suggesting uh, our baby food is better than you could make at home. Uh, it's cleaner. It's safer for babies. You know, they're they're hinting at the dangers of preparing your food at home and the fact that they that it could spoil. Another aspect is it, and this is something that is true, I probably over the centuries. Is there's a lot of anxiety and bound wrapped up in feeding one's infant. You want to feed the child the proper food, the nourishing food, um, the food that's going to be safe. And so there's a lot of parenting, nurturing anxiety that's wrapped up in feeding of solid food. But I wonder to what extent um, formula milk kind of softened women up to, to be ready to feed commercially produced baby food during weaning. I do think it made it easier. And, and you're exactly right that 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 story had been played out earlier, a, a couple decades earlier, with regard to artificial formula. So that did pave the way. And then what? But but the the story that uh, of solid food, the importance of solid food happens in the mid twentieth century because infant feeding is changing rapidly, both in liquid and solid in the twentieth century. And by the mid-20th century, you're getting most infants in the United States, at least, formula-fed. But the introduction of solid food, the age at which it is introduced, is dropping dramatically. And so by the post-war period, as you suggest, the average age of introducing solids is one month, which is pretty amazing. When, I mean, this... this I. I don't know. Is there any easy way to explain why people thought it was a good idea to introduce solid foods at one month of age? <laughs> it's a good question. And a lot of doctors were worried about it. I mean, I read a lot of medical journals on the topic, and they t there was an interesting poll of doctors, pediatricians, in the 1950s, 60s. And the older doctors were worried about it. The doctors who had been practicing a while did not recommend early feeding of solids. But the younger doctors did. And the feeling was that it was responding to um, mothers' insistence on feeding their babies earlier, that they wanted to do it, that there was some sort of cachet in feeding your baby solid foods earlier. Some, uh, um, and that was because advertising made it glamorous. You had advertising... Um, all of the baby food companies showing very, very tiny infants being fed baby food by very lovely, beautiful, coiffed, um, red lipsticked mothers <laughs> who looked very fashionable feeding their tiny infants baby food. And then there was just a feeling like solid food is just better than liquid food. Um, it's healthier. It's more nourishing. My baby will go to sleep better. And there's no evidence that it's not harmful. That evidence, that medical evidence comes out later in the 20th century. And there's what I think a post-World War II um, feeling of American invincibility that's helping fuel this. You know, the United States emerges from World War II as a country of immense 
abundance and wealth and power, and part of its power is derived from its cultural superiority, its economic superiority, and the, that period just has an abundance of um, material goods available for people. And there's this idea that that's what makes us special. That's the unique, the exceptionalism that makes America powerful. And we can feed our babies in a civilized way. We can feed them solid food because we have the technology and the material available. We can use little silver spoons and special bowls because we have that wealth. We're not like those other countries that we see in the pages of National Geographic where women are walking around unclothed with their breasts exposed <laughs> and they're feeding, breastfeeding their babies. Yeah. We are civilized. I mean, actually, there are discussions about this that I found in the record. And so it's wrapped up unconsciously, I think, in this idea of American exceptionalism and post-war wealth that we can, we feed our babies infant foods because we can. And the older doctors are worried, but they're, you know, it's not a match for the, the forces that are demanding it and are approving of it. Yeah, it's, it's like it's your birthright and it starts at birth. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, so when, when and, and why did opinion start to shift towards starting solids later again? It shifted as the American gestalt shifted, I think. When you move into the 1970s and 80s, that post-war um, bravado starts to shift a little bit. Um, the United States is in a different place. There's a counterculture that's questioning the status quo. Um, there's medical studies that are starting to emerge showing the relation between diet and health overall, and then pointing to the fact, well, you know, maybe uh, infants are not being served well enough. There's a consumer movement that's questioning the value and the safety of American products. Mm. And there's a, the women's movement is, I think, contributing. And so women are gaining independence, are gaining um, a sense of themselves. And there are feminists who are demanding more um, access to education and jobs in the public sphere. But then there's also this rise of what's called a natural motherhood. The fact that I am a woman and, and, and my femaleness gives me special powers and knowledge in certain areas that I should trust myself. And one of those areas is, is infant feeding, emphasizing avoiding commercial products and just taking a banana and mashing it yourself and feeding your infant. We don't really need bottled commercialized baby food is the thinking at that point. But but aside from the argument about about when to start solid foods and weaning, what are the differences between commercial baby food and the stuff you can make at home, not just mashing a banana, but maybe pureeing what everybody else is eating? When canned food was developed and commercialized, the canners, um, you know, to... to, to to can food safely, you have to do a lot to it. You have to sterilize the food as much as possible. You have to um, prepare those foods and cook them at very, very, very high temperatures to kill all the harmful bacteria. And when you do that, it changes, it compromises the all of the qualities of food. It compromises the aroma, the texture, 
the appearance, the vitamins, the nutrients. And so canners had to add things back to make that food palatable and acceptable to the general public. And so they would add things like salt, um, sugar, um, preservatives to maintain its, its um, integrity, stabilizers to prevent the liquid from separating from the solid, artificial colors, artificial flavors. And so you have the beginning of all of those additives in processed food to make them look and taste and um, function like food that wasn't canned and cooked and sterilized at a very, very high temperature. And they did that with both regular produce and also infants' produce as well. So you had baby food being manufactured in that same way. A lot of added sugar, a lot of added salt, artificial colors, artificial preservatives. There there were products like baby food desserts that were made. Um, and and that was all seemed fine. And you know, their their real target were mothers who would prob- probably taste that baby food. And if it didn't taste like they thought it should, then they were not necessarily going to buy it. And so in the 1970s, when you have this change in approach to food and um, corporations and government oversight, you you have an understanding that food maybe should not have all of those things, and especially baby food. Is there possibly an argument that commercial baby foods may be good for babies because adults and older children are are eating actually a significantly less diverse and and probably less nutritious diet. Absolutely. There are studies um, in the early 2000s, there are really important studies that are done. And one of the really amazing findings is that these commercial products are allowing infants to eat a greater variety of fruits and vegetables at the appropriate age. Babies who are fed commercial baby food are actually exposed to a greater variety of fruits and vegetables, which of course is good. And if you think about it, the Americans are not good vegetable eaters. Um, I think one in 10 Americans eats the recommended number of five fruits and vegetables a day. And most of the vegetables that Americans do eat are potatoes or tomatoes. And if you dig a little bit deeper into the data, Potatoes are usually in the form of French fries or potato chips, and the tomatoes are in the form of ketchup or tomato sauce that's used on pizza or (laughs) pasta. So not a very good, you know, sterling record for Americans and their fruits and vegetables eating. So if, if you come, if you are a family that eats a variety of fruits and vegetables naturally and it's just part of your family meal and your child is going to grow up in an environment that exposed to a lot of different kinds of fruits and vegetables, that, that's very, very different than the majority of Americans who eat a very, very limited number of fruits and vegetables and an infant grows up in that environment. So if you feed your child jarred baby food, it's very easy to grab a, a jar of squash or a jar of sweet potatoes or try a little bit of this or that. Once you get uh, those families move off infant uh, commercial baby food, you watch the data move on to potatoes and tomatoes. And so you can almost imagine those babies being fed more processed foods, happy meals at McDonald's, you know, other kinds of feeding habits that are less conducive to health. 
And and what kind of impact does the food a baby eats? What what kind of an impact does that have on its later food preferences? This is a really important point and question because the early intro, the introduction of solids to an infant for the first few weeks to the first you know handful of months it's not about nutrition it's about introducing taste and texture and a variety of foods to an infant the infant is still getting the majority of nutrition from breast milk or formula it's really about acclimating that child to what food means. Let me give you a couple of examples. Yeah. Um, so if a baby is only fed white food as first food, so white rice cereal, bananas, applesauce, um, rusks, you know, um, all of that is food, but the baby is learning that food means food is white. And food is by and large mushy. So for that infant, food is white, it's mushy, and it's sweet. And then moving on, it becomes more and more of a challenge to think of as a a bright orange vegetable as food or a bright green cruciferous vegetable as food. And so a baby is going to be – or a spicy food. And so if you – expose in in early introduction of solids your child to an array of colors of food, array of textures, array of presentations, that baby's going to understand that food is comes in all sorts of colors, all sorts of shapes, all sorts of flavor profiles. And that's going to be, the theory goes, better for an infant's food consumption and nutrition down the line. Now, of course, an infant, a child can learn you know, at age 10, that food comes in all these shapes and sizes and become a quote unquote good eater. But if you start a child out introducing them to an array of colors and shapes and textures, it's going to, um, the theory goes, uh, be better for overall health and nutrition. Yeah. And, and as for the 10 year old learning to being taught to enjoy. I mean, it sounds sounds a bit like a sensitive period, like for learning languages. I mean, it's much le- much easier to learn a language at three years old than it is at thirty years old. Also, what environment the the child is entering into, and so that is just hugely important. You know, just watching the the people around them eat, enjoy, um, talk about, value food. That is just tremendous learning um, time for children. So it's, it's the tasting, but it's also the environment that children is, is, be, is eating in. I, I have to ask you about the latest baby food scandal in the U.S., the lead, lead poisoning that's been associated with these cinnamon-flavored applesauce in pouches. And I've also heard that young children given lots of these pouches of, of mushy food are developing problems with their teeth and, and their ability even to chew. So are, are we maybe with this technological advancement, are we, are we storing up another set of problems? <laughs> I think so. Potentially, yes. Uh, when baby food was first commercialized, it came in little tin cans, like other uh, fruits and vegetables that were canned. And eventually the baby food makers switched to little glass jars because parents 
really liked to look at the product. They wanted to know what was inside. They wanted to know what the color looked like. And that was very um, reassuring to parents. So for most of the 20th, 20th century, baby food came in little glass jars. But in the 2000, 2000s, 2010, um, the, the technology changed to these pouches. And those became very, very popular. They were seen as an improvement upon the glass jars, even more portable, less, you know, breakage. And, um, you could just whip off the top of one of those pouches and hand it to your kid if it's old enough. And the kid could just kind of suck it like a, like a milkshake or something. <laughs> that had its advantages and disadvantages. You know, a similar advantage to, to the, to the longer story of baby food, convenience innovation, modernity, but it has its downside. It even further distances um, a parent from the act of feeding the child. You know, before you needed a spoon or you needed a high chair, you needed to kind of watch that child. Now you don't necessarily even need to watch the child. You just hand them the pouch. And if the, the child is old enough, they can, they can do it themselves. All that food are in the mouth um, is terrible for teeth. And so pediatric dentists were very, very worried and seen, uh, have seen increased tooth decay as a result of the pouches. And so wor worry about that, caution against that. It also extends the, the months or years that a, that a family buys baby food because it's kind of turns into like a toddler food as well. Yeah. Um, and that's very good for baby food companies. Baby food ha has a limited appeal to parents and a limited um, time period in which they're going to buy it because, you know, after what, eight, seven, eight, eight, nine months, you know, a baby transitions to table food. And so these pouches ex essentially extend the products, um, product as an option for families into toddlerhood because it can be used like a snack for toddlers. So that is very attractive to the baby food companies, but there are definitely downsides. And then, as you mentioned, the, the scandal of, um, high levels of lead being in applesauce, um, in a pouch is the latest food scare for parents and baby food. And this is very common. This has happened over the centuries. It's been one thing or another in baby food products, especially, which feels um, especially shocking because babies are so vulnerable. And again, parents are responsible for feeding those children and, and letting a product that's compromised, uh, you know, into your children's um, body feels very shocking and anxiety producing. And so this periodically happens in baby food. And um, a few years ago, it was arsenic in white, white rice cereal. And today it's the lead and the cinnamon in the, the applesauce pouches. And so it, just periodically, parents are reminded, oh, these products, while generally safe, uh, it's never a guarantee. Amy Bentley, author of Inventing Baby Food, Taste, Health, and the Industrialization of the American Diet. I'll put a link to the book and her website in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. And I confess that after talking to Amy Bentley, I now have a much better understanding of how baby food, precisely because babies have no say in what they're being offered, 
Our baby food must be such a source of anxiety. I do hope that lead contamination doesn't have long-lasting effects on any of the infants affected. Now, as this is the start of a new season, let me do some housekeeping reminders. There's a written transcript of the show at eatthispodcast.com made possible by the generosity of the people who donate a little something. They also help to offset other costs, and you can join them at eatthispodcast.com slash supporters. If you like the podcast, please suggest it to like-minded friends and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm always trying to put it in front of new listeners, and recommendations and reviews are a great help. And finally, I'm very happy to hear from you, positive or negative. Drop a line to jeremy at eatthispodcast.com. For now, though, from me, Jeremy Churfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening.